Another pot of coffee is brewing. My fifth cup is almost finished. So that means it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. I can't believe that I am almost at the end of season one. Just one more episode to go after this and then it's going to be all change. And there really are and I I seriously cannot wait to share them with you. In fact, I keep on having to tell myself, no, not yet. Take your time. Make sure you've got it all outlined on paper before you say anything at all. So what's the film for today? I thought about this one for quite a long time, to be honest. I wrote lists. In fact, I was sure at one point I had decided exactly what I was going to talk about, and it was going to be 1997's As Good As It Gets with Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt, hence the clues from last week's episode. And then I watched part of it. As much as I remember loving the film, probably two decades ago, I actually felt uncomfortable with it, so I had to change tactics. What film would ring true after my discovery last week that the movie that apparently made a generation, apparently my generation for that matter, was a film that I really didn't like? Well, I mentioned it, in fact, incredibly briefly in my Empire Records episode. Yes, This week, I am going to look at the other teenage film from 1995 that introduced us to new words and phrases and a fashion sense that was decidedly adult for 15 and 16-year-olds. I am going to be saying whatever to Cher and Dion, and I'm watching Clueless. At the time, I loved this film. I really did. In fact, I know I went and saw it at the cinema a good few times, Despite it being a summer movie pretty much everywhere, it was released in the UK on the 20th of October 1995, but it was a film that my local one-screen cinema was showing, because it wasn't clashing with Christmas stuff. Does it hold up to closer scrutiny, though? Am I still going to love it when I look at it through a microscope? You'll have to wait and see. This week, in a change to my usual running order, there will be no book. Yes, you heard me right. No book. But keep an eye on my Instagram for books I have been reading over the last few weeks. I am always updating them over there. I've been a little quiet of late, but I am determined I'm going to pick up because I have to. Of course, it wouldn't be a week in the coffee household if I didn't talk about what's been happening in my mental health world and how I've been coping with things. And I will be talking about the shows and maybe films that I'm going to be adding to my watch list for the coming seven days. The dreams were sparse yet again this week, but so was sleep. I am due my B12 injection next week, so with any luck, things will pick up again and sleep will be more forthcoming. I'm getting so tired of this, (laughs) literally. Yes, I am looking forward to having some of my weirder dreams. There's something to think about when I'm working and not listening to podcasts. They will occasionally put a smile on my face when I'm in a meeting I don't want to be in or drifting off to sleep when there's nothing on the radio. They're entertainment, really. 
Last week, as I've mentioned, I talked about Empire Records and how, despite being a member of the target audience for the film back in 1995, I had never seen it before. The same cannot be said for this week's film, another one for 1995, but this one was a box office hit. Clueless. I saw it in the cinema, we rented it on video, but I never purchased it and I'm actually not sure why. So last weekend, when I determined this was the film I would be watching for my penultimate episode of season one, you can imagine how relieved I was when I discovered that it was actually both on Amazon Prime and Netflix, at least in the UK, I'm not sure about elsewhere. My Amazon is suffering a few buffering bugs at the moment, so for the first time in a while I actually watched something on Netflix. This will be changing, but more about that later. The scene opens with the song Kids in America performed by the Muffs, though to me that song will always be associated with Kim Wilde. Yes, I am an 80s child after all. And we're introduced to Cher Horowitz and her friends. Here I am going to use the term friends incredibly loosely because are they really? We have a montage of shots that looks like something out of some kind of commercial. They're playing in swimming pools, walking around shopping malls and generally having fun spending a lot of money. Not theirs, their parents. Our lead Cher is the narrator as well as the main character and she apparently has, or so she tries to convince us, a very normal teenage life. We definitely don't see any of that in this film. Of course, as she's telling us this, she's going through her morning routine, which includes searching for her perfect outfit using a computer database. I can remember thinking that this was the height of sophistication when I saw the film. And though my wardrobe is pretty limited to leggings, a few black skirts and a ton of coordinating tops, I know that in my teens and early 20s I'd have loved it, though that was my wardrobe then as well. The wardrobe is also incredibly reminiscent of Natalie Sands' automatic one in 1985's Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, though with an obvious additional 10 years of technology. Cher's dad, as we are told, is a litigator, and that means he's both very busy and makes a lot of money, apparently $500 an hour, and she's very proud of this. Money is a key concern through the whole film, even though it's for the most part, quite subtle. Cher comes off as just a tad self-absorbed. She clearly cares for her dad and does her best to ensure he's healthy. I think that this is likely due to the fact that she lost her mother when she was quite young. That morning, he breaks the news to her that that afternoon, her stepbrother, or ex-stepbrother, as she's very keen to remind him, is going to be coming for dinner. According to Mel, Cher's dad, you divorce wives, not children. Therefore, he is determined to keep Josh in his life. Then we see Cher driving. Now, I know that I've mentioned this before and it comes up in a lot of American teen movies. Driving seems to be a rite of passage for kids in America. It's not so much for children in the UK. Surprisingly, or rather unsurprisingly, she is an abysmal driver. Though she hasn't yet got her driving license, and apparently this white Jeep that she has. Now here's me telling you this as automotive writer Ray. Jeeps are incredibly unreliable as vehicles, so don't ever get one. Well, get one if you can afford and you like spending money on repairs. 
and you like it being off the road more than on, at least according to UK statistics. Not sure about US ones. However, Cher hasn't got her driving license and uses this Jeep as a practice vehicle but there's no licensed driver in the car. So she is breaking laws on all fronts. And either her dad is so busy that he's massively unobservant, or he isn't really paying attention. More on that later. She goes to pick up her friend Dion, who is played by Stacey Dash. Interesting note here, Stacey Dash was actually 27 when she took on the role of 15-year-old Dion. It's at this point then we start to question friendship in this film because when Cher starts to talk about how long she's been friends with Dion, you realise that things aren't exactly rosy. According to her, they're friends because they're both named after famous old singers and because they both know what it's like to have people jealous of them. Not sure about anybody else, but I don't think that's a really good foundation for a friendship. At school, we are introduced to Dion's boyfriend, Murray, Cher is very dismissive of schoolboys as boyfriends. She's actually dismissive of boys her own age in general, which is a kind of lead up to several things that happen later on in the film. Her boyfriend, Murray, is played by Donald Faison, who, when I first saw Scrubs, it was like, oh my God, it's the guy from (laughs) Clueless. And now it's more when I see the film, oh, it's the guy from Scrubs. How times change. He puts on a very, very fake front when he sees Dion and Cher and most other people trying to be street, walking with a swagger, his trousers halfway down his backside. He refers to his girlfriend as woman, which is something she makes incredibly clear she doesn't like. And personally, I can understand why. And then they get into a very grown-up argument after she finds a fake weave in his car. Cher, who doesn't want to be part of the drama, though she causes enough of her own in the film itself, heads off, already incredibly aware of how these fights go. In debate class, something we definitely didn't have when I was at school. Do we have it now? Perhaps... It's something saved for prep schools in the UK. Cher is arguing on the side of pro-immigration, while her frenemy, Amber, who has the most dire fashion sense ever, is on the side of against. Her argument boils down to the fact that everyone is welcome, and in one of the most quotable parts of the film, though there are many, to be fair, she says, it doesn't say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. Amber refuses to argue, stating that Cher hasn't done the assignment, and she's probably not wrong, because she started it all off with a, we did my daddy's 50th birthday, and all these people who hadn't RSVP'd turned up, so I had to do a load of stuff with food, so why can't the government do that? If she'd organised her argument better, it would have probably been a far better response to the assignment. Bronson Alcott High School is obviously where a large and very different mix of students attend. As the camera pans around the classroom, it's easy to see that while some girls are from money, those are the ones mostly with bandages on their noses to cover up healing nose jobs, at least that's what you're meant to assume, and incredibly high fashion clothing that would look more in place on a catwalk than in the classroom. Not one of the students is engaged with 
what they're learning or what they're meant to be learning. At the end of the class, Mr. Hall, who is played by Wallace Shawn, he's just so cute. And apparently he was a teacher at some point very early in his career. He gives out the grades and one of the students, Travis, gets up, dismayed and heads straight for the window as though he's going to end everything because his grade was so bad. Cher is horrified. She got a C in debate. Everyone agrees that these grades are bad and by everyone I mean Dion. Mr Hall's grades were harsh. To be honest though, given Cher's rather sophisticated vocab, though sometimes you do get the feeling she has little idea what she's saying, she'd get better grades, especially in debate. When she starts to negotiate her grades to get them improved, I can't help but feel she's hiding her light under a bushel or has been for whatever reason. The film seems to be showing that showing anyone you're intelligent is not considered the thing when you want to be popular. Does anyone else think that leaks are bad for the developmental well-being of students? Because that's the message I'm getting from this. When Cher arrives home, she gives us the rundown on her life. Her mum died when she was young, so she doesn't remember her. There's a huge portrait of her in the entryway of Cher's home that is way classic, with columns dating all the way back to 1972. So totally ancient, says the girl who was born in 1974. When we're first introduced to Josh, it's difficult to ignore the fact that Paul Rudd hasn't aged a single day. Lucky sod. Anyway, he's the cliche of the newly minted college student wearing dark colours, listening to what I always think of as a dirge, and desperate to show that he's suddenly grown up and is socially aware. Then he makes a comment that is so unbrotherly and definitely inappropriate, especially when you consider that for several years Cher was his younger sister, whether by blood or not. (laughs) He looks at Cher and tells her that she's really filling out. What? Come again? (laughs) Was that something incredibly sexist and sexual, or is that just me? Without even thinking, Josh and Cher settle into an antagonistic rhythm, with him being quite dismissive of her intelligence, and her being dismissive of his broody college habits. To him, Cher is just a bit of a nuisance, whose only ability when it comes to seeking direction is finding the nearest shopping mall, and all evidence given doesn't dissuade me from that being the truth. Having told her dad that her report card is being worked on and having been rather smug with Josh when she told him she always renegotiates her grade, what kind of school is this? She sets about lying and cheating her way out of the grades that her actual effort earned her. The really funny thing to me is that had she used the skills she now shows for good in class, then her grades would have been much better anyway. But what do I know? I just earned every single one of mine, and no, I am not jealous at all that she manages to do something I can't. This is a film. She finds the triggers that persuade her teachers that she has earned a better grade. Heartbreak, volunteering, but no matter what, Mr. Hall is not to be budged, and good for him definitely good for him. Having said that though, she's debating with him, proving that she can debate. So maybe he sees this and thinks, well, she can do this, so why isn't she doing it in class? Why isn't she making the effort? Having managed to convince her other teachers and unable to figure out what drives Mr. Hall and will make him change her grades, she goes to the mall with Dion and that's when she is finally inspired 
she has an epiphany. Apparently, Mr. Hall, old, 47-year-old, Mr. Hall needs to get laid. I feel sad when I think that they think 47 is old. In fact, when I watched this the other day and they said, oh, Mr. Hall is 47, all I could think was, oh, but that's how old I am. Is that old? Am I old now? And then I remember that at the age of eight, I thought 28 was old. I can actually remember opening the door to our milkman on my mum's 28th birthday and saying, my mum's 28 today, she's ancient. Oh God, I miss 28. Determined that she isn't going to be thwarted in her plan, Cher, with Dee's help, writes Miss Geist, who happens to be the only other teacher in the school that is A, his age, B, single, and C, not a lesbian, a love letter and sticks it in her staff pigeonhole. That sounds a bit suggestive. Remember when I said that Cher had been driving around in her white Jeep as a practice car? Well, it seems her bad driving earned her a ticket and her dad is furious. She is banned from driving unless she's with another fully licensed driver, which means that pretty much her entire friend circle is out of the equation. I have to say that this film shows a lot of sides to all the characters because while Josh is protesting that the environment is in danger and that the economy is a mess, he's also enjoying living in the lap of luxury, sitting by the pool reading Nietzsche and perhaps that's just a tiny bit hypocritical or maybe that's just me reading things into it. Of course, Josh isn't fooled by Cher's niceties when she comes over and starts flattering him. In fact, he goes as far as to call her selfish, a phrase that actually sticks with her. And the following day, she asks Dee if her friend would call her selfish, to which Dee responds with the sort of answer that I would never associate with a friend. Not to your face. I don't think there are any real, true friends in this at all. It's time for phase two of Make Mr. Hall Happy. All for the sake of a grade. I'll give Cher props for the fact that she's persistent and again will say that if she showed this much dedication to doing her schoolwork, she really wouldn't have to persuade teachers to change her grades at all because she'd have earned good ones. So phase two involves pretending she's a total ditz, which isn't difficult and giving Mr. Hall a flask of rich Italian roast coffee that she accidentally forgot to give her dad and encouraging him to share it with Miss Geist. Phase two, success. Because the teachers are happy, student morale is at an all-time high, with Cher's classmates cheering her on for her success in getting the teachers off their backs. They're all getting much better grades, though they aren't doing much better in class. So, in this case, could it be considered counterproductive? However, Cher is thriving on the admiration that she's getting from her fellow class students. For the first time in the film, and one of the only times actually, we get to see the school's gym facilities. And I have to say that for a school where a large number of the students are the children of wealthy parents, they are lacking when it comes to equipment. One swing at a tennis ball per student per class? Really? What are they spending money on? 
Do the parents not consider their kids' education to be money well spent? Okay, yeah, I know I'm reading a lot into it, but that's important to me, and the fact that they have no class equipment is ridiculous. As they're all standing in line, Cher having made yet another speech about how it's incredibly unfair that there are no resources, a new student is introduced. Meet Ty Frazier, fresh from New York, if you couldn't tell by her incredibly thick accent. Still thinking about what Josh said about her being selfish, Cher immediately sees the new girl as her opportunity to prove him wrong. As far as Cher is concerned, the girl is tragically unhip and she must take her under her wing immediately and make her into another clone because that's what we all need. At lunch, while getting a drink, Ty bumps into Travis and they immediately hit it off. It's really cute to see them together, to be honest. They have similar interests and similar styles. Their conversation is mostly about the stickers on his skateboard and the sketches she has in her binder of Marvin the Martian, who's a character I think is so cute. What's really sad is that despite this being a large part of her character at the start, the artistic side of her, it's completely ignored for the rest of the film. In fact, it's never mentioned again. When Cher discovers that the cute guy Time met is not one that she considers to be acceptable, and I'm emphasising she, Cher does her best to highlight the ones that are. Travis will never be considered someone appropriate. I have to be honest, when she starts lecturing her about, oh, well, I'm a month older than you, therefore you have to listen to me because I know more, I remember feeling superior to my younger friends when I was about eight or nine. I'm older, even if it was only by a month or so, or even a week. To hear that coming out of the mouth of someone who believes themselves to be mature is really weird. I'm older by a month, so you have to listen. Seriously, that that entire thing is just cringe. Cher and Dee somehow managed to persuade Ty into a makeover, because unless she meets specific criteria she a can't be their friend and b won't ever fit in but who is she meant to be trying to fit in with them because while people seem to admire them they don't have a massive clique of real friends and surely that's what you should be looking for when they rinse off ty's really red hair the amount of dye that comes out of it is something that has to be seen to be believed Seriously though, if that is what it's like every single time she washes her hair, her mum must go insane. Thank God Cher has a cleaner, but you can't help feeling sorry for Lucy at this point. At school the next day, Cher is incredibly proud of herself and what she has done to change Ty. The new girl is getting attention from everywhere it seems. Travis, unaware that he is now persona non grata, when he's been nothing but nice and hasn't done anything to deserve it, hands tie a flyer to a party in the valley, which starts a conversation about which boys are acceptable to date if you must date a schoolboy. For someone who doesn't date, Cher sure knows a lot about it, or does she? I mean, that's a fair question. Does she actually know anything about dating, or is it all from books? And while book knowledge is important, experiences too... Anyway, Sherry's positive she's found the right man for Ty, the perfect man in fact, Elton, a lazy sleaze who spends most of his time draping himself all over Cher. If that's not a signal, I don't know what is. She does her best 
to set up situations where the couple will be forced together, even as it's very clear he's about as interested in Ty as Sherry is in him. It's at the party in the valley where things take a bit of a downturn. Doesn't take long. They've taken photos together. He asks for a copy of one of them. They go to the party because apparently Elton has her photo in his locker. First, Travis spills beer on Cher's satin shoes and she has a meltdown. Then, during a game of suck and blow, a game I don't recognise at all, Elton decides to change the rules and kisses Cher. And then, to top it all off, poor Ty gets knocked out when someone else's shoe hits her in the head. It doesn't end there, though, because of course it can't. Tragedies don't come in threes. And this is the point where you'd have thought that Cher would get a wake-up call. But she doesn't. After a bit of manipulation that doesn't work, Elton ends up driving Cher home. He's been apparently getting signals from her. Clearly, his receiver's all messed up because... The only ones I get are, stay away, my friend is perfect for you. After Cher tells him no for the last time, the fact that there had to be more than one time is enough to further establish that he's an asshole. He tells her that not only does his being with Ty make zero sense, the other girl isn't good enough for him. What a jerk. When Cher refuses to be persuaded back into his car, in the middle of nowhere, at a bodega or an off-license, sorry, liquor store, He drives off, leaving her in the valley, miles from home. Before she can get further than calling information and asking for the number of a taxi company on her cell phone, she's robbed at gunpoint and then has to call and beg Josh to give her a ride home. I have to say, it's funny that despite the fact they wind each other up constantly, she knows that she can always call him and he will come to her rescue. Josh is a good egg, despite saying a few inappropriate things to his ex-stepsister. I have to be honest, even the first time I watched this, I was really surprised that when Cher arrived at school, she didn't try and get some sympathy from her peers for the gunpoint robbery. She's an incredible drama queen the majority of the time. I mean, the way she reacted when Travis spilt beer on her shoes. Oh my God, you spilt beer on my shoes. It's going to stain. That's never going to come out. You've ruined them. But the incident isn't mentioned at all. She doesn't try to use it for sympathy or anything else. Am I the only person who finds that just a tiny bit strange? She has that attention tool at her fingertips and she never uses it. Of course, the next day isn't without drama, and it's all because of something that Cher did in the first place. Cher has to tell Ty that Elton isn't interested, and Ty is all tears and upset, even though the pair had barely spoken, and she she wasn't even interested in him to start with. The entire situation was down to Cher's machinations. And in walks Christian Stovitz. Wearing slacks and a black tee with a jacket slung casually over his shoulder, He's the 1940s in real life. He calls women doll, tells them they have nice pins, and his general demeanour is fan fiction Bucky Barnes. At least that's how I thought of him this time when I watched the film. Yes, I read MCU fanfic. I admit it's my guilty pleasure. And actually, no, it's not my guilty pleasure. I don't feel guilty for it. It's one of my pastimes. It's how I spend time when I'm looking for something to do that isn't research, watching a movie or reading a physical book, I will read fanfic. I don't care, who knows? 
he's charming, seems sophisticated, and Cher is immediately fascinated. So of course, her mission to find someone else for Ty is on the back burner, while she does everything she can to get Christian's attention. Oh, right here, I have to take a moment's break though. Not a physical break, but I have to ask, what on earth is Amber wearing? Every single time you see her in this film, it's as though she stepped out of a weird science fiction film. Not one of her outfits makes any sense in the real world, including the red nautical air stewardess thing she is wearing right at this moment in the film. She is definitely struggling her identity. That's all I can say. Cher is overjoyed when Christian asks her if she's rationed. See, I said Bucky Barnes, right? And then asks her if there are any parties that weekend. She knows that one of Josh's friends at college is having an event, so they agree to go together. For all that he's charming, there is something about Christian that doesn't sit well with Josh, who can't seem to take his eyes off Cher. He starts to play things all protective and even convinces himself that he's going to go to a party he had zero intention of attending because Cher's going and he doesn't trust Christian. Is it that he doesn't trust Christian or is it that he's just realised he's attracted to Cher and he's jealous? To say that Christian is not the best date a girl could have is probably a mild understatement. He pays more attention to everyone else, especially the bartender, and what the heck is that weird grunt he does with a strange lip lift every time he does a turn when he's dancing? Anyway, Josh does his best to keep Ty company, all the while paying quite close attention to Cher on the dance floor. And Cher has come to a very inaccurate conclusion that none of her friends are helping dissuade her from, that Christian is falling in love with her. Oh, sweetie. Seriously, I just want to hug her at this point. She is so oblivious that a luminous, bright pink flashing sign could be pointing at his head and she'd miss it. By the end of the night, Christian is still going as though he's an energizer bunny on speed. That's the only thing I could think of. He's on the dance floor, still moving away as though there's really loud pumping music going and everybody else is lying down on tables and watching him thinking, oh my God, my feet hurt. Ty and Cher are exhausted, so Josh tells Christian he's going to take them both home. And Christian is fine with that. Cher is so enamoured that she doesn't question whether this is the move of a good date or not. It's certainly not the kind of ending to a first date most people would shrug off. And I'm surprised that, given her history, she does. Cher knows the rules of dating, so when Christian tells her he's going to call her the next day, she is sure that he won't however he does and arranges to come over that night for movies and food the buzzer that she should have heard at some point when she was with him the previous night doesn't even go off when he spends their date for which she looks blotchy but stunning swooning over tony curtis and sporaticus sorry spartacus she offers him wine which he turns down and then he gets a deer-in-headlights look as he realises that she's trying to seduce him and can't leave quick enough. Cher is left wondering why her plans went so very wrong so incredibly quickly. The fact that she's so completely clueless when it comes to Christian makes you realise as you listen to her giving other people advice 
that she really has zero clue about anything. Yet people still listen to her because she sounds as though she knows what she's talking about, which is certainly unfortunate for people like Ty who believe what she says and think she's giving them really good advice, which she's not. Of course, as soon as Murray spells it all out for Cher and Dion, both of whom believe Cher would lose her virginity to Christian, Cher discovers another shopping buddy and best friend. No sooner do things start to look up for everybody than Cher's social worth takes a huge nosedive. And being honest, I don't think that it was unwarranted. She needed that reality check. She's ruled the school for a long time for no reason, apart from the fact that she has money for good clothes and seems to know what she's talking about, and dictating how everyone else should act. No one has ever held her accountable, apart from her dad and Josh, when things go wrong. After a near-death experience at the mall, Ty becomes the focus of everyone's attention. Dee is talking to her about sex, people want to know what being close to death is like, and for once, Cher is on the outside looking in. Where once she was the person people crowded around, she is now the one that people have to squeeze room for, and it's really obvious that she hates it. She's now getting to see how she treated people, and it's not a pleasant realisation, especially when she sees Ty dismiss Travis and call him a slacker who needs to go back to his slacker friends, and everyone laughs about it. The whole situation also makes her question her self-worth. Cher's life is toppling like a poorly constructed house of cards. She's unable to argue her way into another chance at taking her practical driving test, which she fails admirably well. (laughs) How can you fail something admirably well? Well, you can drive into another car, drive on the wrong side of the road, pay no attention because you're focusing on something else. She does all of it. She offends Lucy, the housekeeper. And then when she gets home, Ty is there flirting subtly with Josh. Seriously, I have asked this before and I will ask it again until I understand it, but are all teenagers this dramatic? I know that I do a few things occasionally and have that, oh my god, my life is over moment, but it wasn't to this extreme because I lived in the real world. Okay, so this is a film. Maybe that's answered my question. Ty never dated Elton never really actually liked him and yet she has a box of memories from them that she needs Cher's help to destroy because she's fallen for someone else. Yes, at this moment Ty is being rather harsh but she's also being quite fair when she tells Cher that she wants help in getting Josh. Cher is resistant and Ty blows up at her Why am I even listening to you to begin with? You're a virgin who can't drive. At that moment, Cher realises Ty has become all the things in Cher that were a bit shit to begin with. But while Cher and Dee can be bitchy to each other, they have the backup of a really long friendship or association, something that Ty and Cher are currently lacking. So this is going to be a little bit more difficult to plaster over. Drama is definitely the name of the game for this leading lady, though. She's walking around designer stores and spending her dad's money when she realises that the whole reason she felt so crap when Ty told her she was interested in Josh is due to the fact that she's in love with Josh herself. 
talk about an awkward realisation to have. He's your ex-step-brother and lives in your home and your dad still thinks of him as his son. But then I keep on remembering the comments about her filling out and the fact that he couldn't take his eyes off her when she was headed out on her date with Christian. Yes, she's got her chance with her brother from another mother and father. Thank God they aren't related. This would have turned into a very, very strange film if they were. Having realised that her tactics are going to have to change if she wants Josh, we get another montage as she sets about improving herself. But this time, it's her soul rather than her appearance. The most important bit, if you ask me. And during this journey, she realises that she got a lot of things wrong, including Travis, who is himself on a journey of self-discovery, having joined the 12-step programme at Narcotics Anonymous. At least, I'm assuming it's Narcotics Anonymous rather than Alcoholics Anonymous, because we know that he smokes a lot of weed, and possibly does other things too. While things are getting better at school, there is still that huge question, what to do about Josh? But the resolution for that is incredibly easy. All it takes is Cher making a massive cock-up in a case that her dad's working on for Josh to lean in for a light kiss, which turns into a deeper one when she reciprocates. And they all live happily ever after. Well, possibly. <laughs> we'll never really know. On the surface, Clueless is a story about privilege and how it can be used for good and for bad. However, when you look just a tiny bit beneath the surface, you can see all the subtle messages that were in the book that inspired it, Jane Austen's 1815 novel, Emma. I've mentioned before how one of the things I love about Austen is the way that she so cleverly made fun of the upper echelons of society, how their desire to be adored and respected went some way towards removing both of those things. Clueless does that for teenagers. Cher Horowitz is the centre of her universe, unaware that there is anything outside it, until something tips the scales and she realises that she really doesn't know it all. That she isn't the most important person, that there are other things that matter outside of her immediate circle. The more I think about the film and the further into it I got, the more I realised that Cher was the mistress of her own destiny and was the one who also did everything she could to make it a disaster, however unintentionally. Okay, so she likely didn't realise what she was doing, but she was Dr Frankenstein and every single thing she did to improve Ty was turning her little by little into the social monster she became at her peak. Had Cher just been friends with Ty, hung out with her, welcomed her to the school rather than showing her how she felt things should be done, then there would have been no robbery at gunpoint, no argument with Ty, no incident where she became the temporary social outcast. It's possible that there would also have been no growth of her character either, so perhaps the bad needs to be weighed against the good. Last week I talked about another teen comedy that came out in 1995, Empire Records, and mentioned the fact that Michael Nathanson, the studio executive at New Regency, turned down Clueless when it was offered because he already had the rights to a film he felt was going to be a teen comedy hit in Empire Records. Being honest, that is actually the main part of the reason why I chose to talk about Clueless this week. So, having talked about how much of a box office blunder Empire Records was, what are the stats on Clueless? When it was made, it had a budget of $12 million and it went on to earn an impressive 
$56 million at the global box office. This admittedly is probably aided by the fact that when it was released worldwide, having been released in the US and Canada and a lot of other places in July, it didn't coincide with Christmas, unlike Empire Records. Of course, filming wasn't without its complications. The team completed filming in really short and very impressive 40 days. But they were hit with multiple delays due to Alicia Silverstone developing stomach ulcers. She wasn't someone they could film around as she was in almost every single shot. She'd had a lead in The Crush in 1993, but this was the first time a film hinged on her completely. Clueless is also the film that inspired a multitude of media spin-offs. In 1996, several of the original cast, including Stacey Dash and Donald Faison, returned to their roles in the TV series. Unfortunately, Alicia Silverstone was unable to reprise the role of Cher due to contract conflicts. The film also spawned a series of teen books, similar in style to the popular Sweet Valley High books, and I cannot believe I missed them. I don't even recall seeing them anywhere, and maybe I should go and look on Amazon at some point. And in 2019, it was announced that a spin-off is being planned by CBS. According to reports, it is still in development and was, as recently as August 2020, no casting has been announced and neither has a release date. So what's that one about? Set in modern-day Los Angeles, the spin-off will find Dion stepping into the role of the most popular girl at Bronson Alcott High after her best friend Cher Horowitz mysteriously disappears. So let's take from that as it's based at the high school, even though it's based in modern-day Los Angeles, they're still going to be high school students. So I know that Stacey Dash hasn't aged very much. I don't think she's going to be stepping back into her role of Dion, unfortunately, because she was really good in that role. I can't help but think, though, it also sounds a bit like an episode arc of Veronica Mars, which I absolutely loved. But perhaps that's just me. What do you think? Does it sound like something that you would get a subscription to watch? I'd love to know. In fact, I'd love to find out what they're going to do with it because it's been quiet for about eight months now. There are always questions I ask myself when I watch any film. And though I've always loved this one, it will not be any different. Did I enjoy it? Yes, despite there being a lot of things that I wish I could now unsee, like the uncomfortable scene at the beginning with Josh and Cher, it's an amusing film and a clever modernisation of a novel I've always enjoyed. Will I watch it again? More than likely at some point, though probably not for a while. (laughs) It's enjoyable, but not something I can watch over and over and over again, unlike Iron Man, which I watch at least once a month. Oh, should I admit that? I can probably recite the script for that one. If it were remade, would anything change? I have to be honest, I would be really sad if they remade this film. It was a product of its time, and that makes it a film that should be left right where it is. So this reboot spin-off thing is a little concerning if they're making it in modern-day LA, but still using the characters as teenagers. 
We have a glut of teenage comedies, past and present, and there are loads of stories that are still to be told with more showing up every day. You only have to go over to Wattpad to see them. That said, I think that if they were to remake it, they would probably stress the social message a lot more. So that's it on Clueless. Did you like Clueless? Have you seen it? Have you never seen it? If so, why not? Would you watch it after what I've just said? Or did you have your doubts and that's encouraged you? I'd love to find out what you think. Enjoy the random. Really love listening to people just talking about anything and everything. In a world of utter randomness, one podcast stood out from the bunch. And it was The Amazing World of Talking Shiz. (coughs) <coughs> Sorry, I had to clear my throat there. Um, yeah, it's just mainly randomness. And focus is it's definitely not being not focused on at all. No. Uh, our podcast is definitely um, no theme at all. It's literally random and talk about literally everything and throwing in random jokes at any given time. Yeah. We're on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. And- so go ahead, tune in. New episodes weekly. And we're international international very very well so tune in follow us on twitter see you there so that's talking shears a radio show with a zero script find it where you can find all good podcasts after you've finished listening to my episode would you believe me if i told you that i had watched the last two episodes of the falcon and the winter soldier you might Unless I told you that I am still avoiding spoilers. (laughs) For some reason, this weekend just vanished. Okay, not exactly, but it did pass me by very quickly. I had, as I mentioned last week, my appointment for my second COVID jab, and it hit me like the proverbial ton of bricks. A bruised arm that weighed about nine tons? Check. Headache that went without paracetamol but didn't stay gone unless I took them every four hours, which is two hours too soon. Check. Nausea. Check. Temperature. Check. Feeling generally awful. Check, check and check. (laughs) So that was Saturday and a lot of Sunday already written off without even trying. And then I discovered that I had only gone and missed an entire week of Australian MasterChef. You may not know this about me yet, but I am about to share with you my love of Australian MasterChef. Do I watch the UK one? Nope. Have I ever managed to sit through an entire episode of Gordon Ramsay as the harsh judge on the US version? Again, nope. But sit me down with 90 minutes or more of a group of Australians being judged for their cooking ability and I am hooked. Seriously, I've watched every single one of the previous 12 seasons. So there went the rest of my Sunday. Oops. So what does the return of MasterChef Australia five times per week mean for my watching schedule? Just that I watch it five times per week and then fit everything in around it? I can't help it. It's my favourite thing to watch, seriously, the whole year. It's the one thing that me and my mum have in common. We both love Australian MasterChef and it can make our Saturday conversations last for an extra 30 minutes as we discuss everything the chefs did wrong in our view. Is there anything else that I'm going to be watching? Well, this weekend we've actually got a bank holiday. Yay, an extra day off. Which means 
an extra day for watching something and enjoying something more. So what's on the list? Shadow and Bone is on there, as is the last episode of the seventh season of The Broken Wood Mysteries, and it was two episodes longer this time, still nearly finished it. It's been a really good run though, and I will also be watching, I promise, the last two episodes of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I have to say I feel both amazed and a little surprised that I haven't encountered any spoilers. I really haven't. And also that I have managed to resist watching any of it during my lunch break because I have to watch the whole thing and give it my attention and I can't do that when I'm constantly waiting for the alarm to go off telling me I've got to go back to my desk. Every single week I give a little insight into the various issues I have experienced as I work through my mental health problems. This week I went out on my own for the first time in a while to get the second of my Covid jabs and as I walked past all the people that were carrying on with their everyday lives I realised that I was absolutely terrified. Seriously terrified. I have to be honest here and say that I don't know what triggered the social anxiety that reared its head less than a decade ago. Before that time, I travelled alone. As I mentioned last week, I was very good at travelling abroad to spend money I didn't have. I went to conventions, I went to clubs and pubs, and I never cared that I was going to places where I didn't know people. Until suddenly I developed this nausea whenever I was near strangers, or in a crowd. I would love to be able to put it down to a single event something that I can get therapy for, talk through and eventually move away from. However, as with a large number of things that are related to mental health, it's not that straightforward. The strangest thing about it is that it was that instant. It really was that quick. One week I wasn't nervous about sitting on a crowded train heading to work. The next I was shaking the moment I got on the train and throwing up as soon as I arrived at the office. This went on for a few months before I realised I couldn't live like this long term. I ended up speaking with my GP and being referred for once as an emergency patient meant that I saw a specialist incredibly quickly. After several sessions of talking through my feelings, analysing my mood, the general ups and downs and further sticking knives in a part of my life that I revisit only when I have to, I was still no further forward. I had another diagnosis to add to the already pretty long shopping list that is my mental psyche, but I was no further forward in discovering why this had happened. So, back to this weekend. As I walked past all the people who seemed relieved to be able to socialise and spend time outside without fear of glares after the last few months, all I could think about was the germs, everything those people had touched, everywhere they'd been and everyone they'd been in contact with, and it churned my stomach. I thought that this would be it though, that as I continued my walk, my thoughts would instead focus on getting the jab and breathing because seriously I need my B12 injection and going home. But then I got on a bus. All the thoughts that had gone through my head as I walked past people, watching as they seemed to enjoy the sunny but cold day we were having, just got worse. Apart from the strange improvement that not wearing glasses for a few months through stubbornness had on my eyesight when I was about 10, yeah, that's weird, I don't blindly or stupidly believe that ignoring something is just going to make it go away. But I never for one moment thought that my social anxiety would get worse. 
Of course, I didn't think it would get better either, but you can sort of err on the side of, yes, it will improve a little bit. Ultimately, I know that I will need to eventually take a chance and go into a crowded room full of people I don't know and not throw up. But I have to start small, baby steps. The bus was the first move in a very long journey to a point where I don't feel as though every moment is terrifying. I know this may sound like I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. And believe me, less than a decade ago, I would likely say exactly the same thing. But the terror that goes through me at the thought of being in enclosed spaces, whether a bus, an office or a shop, has my stomach rolling and the blood in my head rushes until I get a throbbing headache, which makes me dizzy. The next few months are going to be a true test of my mental fortitude as more and more places open up and people start going out even more. Lockdown, as awful as it was, was good for part of my mental well-being as bumping into crowds didn't happen and even waiting room at the doctors was quiet as often I was the only one there. I'm not stupid enough to believe that returning to crowded, stress-inducing streets and shops full of people is a bad thing for the majority, but as the minority, the quiet is something that I will always relish. I was always going to find the return to normal difficult. In fact, I dare anyone to say that despite the longing for normality, the return hasn't been something they've struggled to adjust to. For over a year, we've been collectively through something that we'd previously only ever seen in dystopian disaster movies, something that only happened in the worst of nightmares. Adjusting to this new normal, because being honest, the normal we had before March 2020 will be a long time coming, is not going to be immediate, but hopefully it will be relatively painless. Don't forget, there is just one more episode left of season one after this one. And as my loyal listeners voted, it's going to be on a limited TV series. Ask and I shall deliver, though not always. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the listen. I release a new one every week. So if you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and post a review on one of the many podcatchers out there like iTunes or Podchaser. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at notbeforecoffeepodcast. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I definitely haven't had enough, so I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. <laughs>